Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Jeff Verdon Law Group. For more than 20 years, I've entrusted my personal estate planning and asset protection to the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group, and you should too. Go to jmvlaw.com and mention my name and get 50% off on your initial consultation. Friday the 13th did not turn out to be an unlucky day for the stock market. All of the major stock market averages enjoyed big rallies on Friday. Of course, these are the type of rallies that you expect to occur in bear markets. Sometimes during bear markets, investors panic to buy. They don't panic to sell until the end of the bear market. And despite the carnage, I have not really seen any indications of panic selling. I've seen more indications of panic buying, which in my mind indicates that there's still a lot of downside to go. Although the gains on Friday were not enough to turn the tide of red on the week because the U.S. stock market index has finished another week in the red. This is the sixth consecutive losing week for stocks. The longest streak of weekly losses going all the way back to June of 2011. So better than 11 years ago before you can put together six consecutive weekly declines. We'll see if we can make it a seventh week next week because despite this bounce, I think there's still a lot of downside left in the market. There was a lot of news early in the morning that helped set the tone for the rally. First of all, we got Elon Musk tweeting out that his deal to buy Twitter was on hold. Ironic that he would make that announcement on Twitter itself. And as soon as he tweeted about it, shares of Twitter plunged by 20%. Now, Twitter's shares were already trading at a pretty good discount to the supposed offer price, 54 and change, that Musk made for Twitter. So there was a lot of risk that the deal wasn't going to happen. I've been pointing that out. And you can tell by the discount because there was a big arbitrage opportunity if you bought shares in the open market and then tendered them into the buyout. The risk, of course, was the deal didn't happen. And that risk was elevated on Friday morning when Musk tweeted that he was reconsidering the deal and the stock price collapsed. Now, as soon as Twitter shares sold off, Tesla's shares spiked by about 5%. Of course, it's good news for Tesla. That is one of the reasons I didn't think Musk was going to buy Twitter, that he actually had any real intention of doing it, that he was having some fun, that he was bluffing. Maybe he was just trying to pump up the price of the shares he already owned so he can bail at a profit. I just didn't think it made sense for him to A, pay that much for Twitter and B, jeopardize Tesla because if he has to margin his Tesla shares in order to overpay for Twitter, he is at risk of a margin call if the market melts down, which it could very easily do if you look at what's happening to so many other high multiple meme type stocks, the same thing could easily happen to Tesla. So when the news comes out that the deal might not happen, there's a relief rally in Tesla shares. And of course, Tesla shares have been beaten up pretty badly going into the session. 
And so there was probably some reason for the stock to bounce, maybe some shorts covered. But throughout the day, there were a lot of statements, both by Twitter and maybe Musk himself, that left the door open that, yes, this deal still might happen. Maybe it'll happen at a lower price. I mean, maybe that's what Elon Musk is trying to do. After all, the market for high-priced momentum-type stocks, and you would put Twitter in that camp, the market for these stocks has crashed since Musk made his offer. So clearly, if he was making a new offer today, he would offer a much lower price. Now, I think there's a $1 billion penalty for walking away from the deal. But if he can renegotiate a better deal where maybe he saves 3 or 4 or $5 billion, then paying that $1 billion penalty is worth it. But if he walks away from the deal completely, he's still on the hook for that penalty. Now, maybe he'll be able to get rid of his Twitter shares and make a large enough profit to offset that penalty that he has to pay for walking away from the Twitter deal. But I think when this happened, by lifting Tesla stock, that helped lift the share price of the ARK Innovation ETF. That thing ended up up 11.8% on the day. But Tesla wasn't the only catalyst helping the ARK ETF. One of its other big holdings, Robinhood, was up 25% on the day because in the pre-market news broke that crypto billionaire FTX CEO Samuel Bankman-Fried bought a 7.6% stake in the company valued at just under $650 million, making him the third largest shareholder in Robinhood. He claims his stake is passive. He just saw it as a good investment opportunity. But obviously, somebody taking a major stake in the stock was a catalyst for people to buy. Probably more likely some of the shorts covered. And we saw that big pop. Now, maybe this guy, Bankman Freed, is a smart guy, but I think he's making a bad decision to buy Robinhood. Now, maybe he ends up trading out of it at a profit. I have no idea. But if he thinks he's getting a good long-term value on this company, I think he's sadly mistaken. I think Robinhood is ultimately going bankrupt. Maybe it's not going to disappear. Maybe its creditors will eventually own the company. I have no idea. Maybe a larger company will end up buying them out. In fact, maybe that's what Bankman Freed believes. Maybe he thinks a larger brokerage firm will want these accounts and will buy the company. I doubt these accounts are that lucrative for most brokerage firms. I think they're too small to have much value. Now, maybe they will get bought up by a bigger brokerage firm, but I think that will be a distressed sale, and I think it will happen at a much lower price than the one Bankman Freed just paid. But in any event, that was a catalyst that helped send the market up. All kinds of stocks were up on sympathy. Look at Coinbase up 16%. That stock had just made a new record low the prior day. MicroStrategies up 19% on the day. Look what happened to the meme stocks. GameStop was up 10%. AMC up 5.5%. In fact, the crappier the stock, the more it tended to go up. The blue chip stocks didn't have nearly as big a move. The Dow Jones was up 1.5% on the day. S&P 500 was up 2.4%. NASDAQ Composite up 3.7%. Russell 2000 also had a big gain up 3.1%. Again, all these indexes still finishing down on the week and they are not out of the woods. The biggest loser though, I think, on the week was Bitcoin. In particular, look at shares of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Despite a 7.6% 
rise on the day. The fund was still down 21% on the week. That's a much bigger decline than, let's say, the ARK Innovation Fund. That was only down 4.5% on the week. So Bitcoin doing a lot worse than a lot of the other risk assets on the NASDAQ in particular because of what happened with the Terra Luna coin and the UST, US dollar stable coin, completely blowing up. As I'm recording this podcast on Saturday late morning, the UST stable coin is below 20 cents. So people who bought that particular coin, believing that they couldn't lose and thinking they were going to get 20% annual interest, have now lost more than 80% of their principal, and obviously they're not getting any interest. So that was a complete disaster. The people who bought Terra Luna lost even more. But of course, they didn't think they were buying a stable coin. They thought they were going to get rich, these lunatics. Instead, they went broke. The Terra Luna coin is basically at zero. I mean, it's not quite at zero. It's hard for a crypto to ever go to zero because you can break down each individual unit into a tiny fraction of a cent. And that's where this thing is trading, 0.000, something like that, cents. And so it's very volatile. And you can obviously make and lose a lot of money if you buy enough of these things. But eventually it is going to zero out. But this really highlights the risk inherent in these coins. But more importantly, look at how many people in the Bitcoin industry, crypto in general, were singing the praises of this company, its CEO, the founders, a lot of high profile people, Mike Novogratz, not only did his Galaxy Digital invest a lot of money, the guy tattooed the Nova symbol on his arm. That's how big a fanatic he was and how much he believed in this Terra Luna project and their stable coin And the whole thing imploded. And the question people have to ask themselves is if so many of the biggest people in crypto, supposedly the smartest people in that crypto room, if they couldn't see that this was a scam, what else are they wrong about? Because the very minute I heard about this, I knew there was a problem. I immediately tweeted it out because when I read that they were going to have $10 worth of Bitcoin backing their US dollar stablecoin, the minute I read that, It made no sense to me. How could you have a stable coin that's stable to the dollar if you don't have any dollar reserves? If your only reserves are Bitcoin, which in and of itself is not stable, then how could you have a coin that stability is based on backing by something that in and of itself is not stable? And so the whole thing to me seemed ridiculous. But the Bitcoin community embraced this nonsense. And I think one of the reasons they did was because they were buying so much Bitcoin. They were claiming that they were going to use all this Bitcoin as a reserve. And all of a sudden now, all these Bitcoin pumpers had a use case for Bitcoin. Ah, you see, Bitcoin can be used for something. It's going to be used as a reserve, just the way gold once was a reserve for fiat currencies. Bitcoin is going to be a reserve for digital currencies. And so the Bitcoin community really wanted to embrace this because they were getting all this money and then using it to buy up Bitcoin. The problem was the whole thing imploded so quickly because Bitcoin itself started to go down. But the other problem was the UST stablecoin was not just backed by Bitcoin, but also backed by these Luna tokens. And in order to defend the stability of UST, they had to keep creating more and more Luna and selling them into the market to buy up UST. And that immediately started a crash in Luna because the supply was exploding and the whole thing spiraled out of control and it just completely blew up. But 
this was an obvious accident waiting to happen. The only thing that surprises me is that this time it happened so quickly. The whole thing blew up in about a week's time. It wasn't that long ago where I first pointed out how ridiculous this thing was. Normally, when I predict something, it takes a long time for my predictions to come true. This is one of the quickest predictions that I've ever made as far as how quickly it came true. But you have all these people in Bitcoin now, they have a big credibility problem. Because if they didn't see this scam, what other scams are they not seeing? If the Terra Luna coin can go from $50 billion value to zero in a week, who's to say the same thing can't happen to Ether or the same thing can't happen to Bitcoin? There's really no difference. It's all about confidence. So people lost confidence in Luna. They just haven't lost confidence yet in Ether. They haven't lost confidence yet in Bitcoin. But a week and a half ago, there was plenty of confidence in the Terra Luna coin. So confidence is a very fragile thing. It can be lost very quickly. And the problem with lost confidence is once it's lost, it's very difficult to get it back. You only have one chance at that. And if you lose the confidence, it's all over. And that is why there's so much risk here. And you know, I was watching a lot of people interviewed on CNBC, in particular, the CEO of Coinbase. And she was asked specifically about what just happened with Terra, Luna, and their stable coin, and what happened in general to the price of cryptocurrencies. Because the market cap on cryptocurrencies has fallen from about $3 trillion at a peak to about $1.2 trillion now near the lows. That's a huge decline, better than a 60% decline in the value of all these cryptocurrencies. And so she was asked... If this is significant, does it mean anything? Does it change anything about their business model? Does it make you question your strategy or the whole viability of the industry? And basically, she said, no, this doesn't change anything. It doesn't mean anything that we've lost 60% of market cap. It doesn't matter that Bitcoin has fallen so much. In fact, on its lows on Thursday, Bitcoin got down to 25400 It may have even dipped below 25000 on certain exchanges. I was just watching on one exchange and the low we hit was 25400 Now we've recovered since then. We actually moved back above 30000 on Friday, almost to 31000 And a lot of people were very happy to see that because they thought that meant the bottom was in. I didn't think it meant that at all. In fact, as I'm recording this, we're closer to 29000 than we are to 30000 I think the 30000 area used to be support. Now it's resistance. So it doesn't matter if Bitcoin can peak its head back above 30000 or even go to thirty-one or 32000 I think that area is now massive overhead resistance. The new support is around 25,000, which was established on Thursday, but that's not solid support. That's just the next target for Bitcoin. Now, it's possible we could be range-bound in Bitcoin between about 25,000 on the low side and maybe 31,000 on the high side. We may be trapped in that trading range before the next leg down. But we still haven't had a brutal leg down. We still haven't had any capitulation that would make me think we've seen a short-term bottom in Bitcoin. Now, we're never going to see a long-term bottom until we zero out. But we can certainly see a short-term bottom that might give way to a larger rally. But I think we have to flush out all of the margin owners of Bitcoin, all the people who have borrowed money against their Bitcoin. I think they need to get flushed out, which is why I think we need to drop below 10000 not just a below 30,000 or even 20,000, but a drop below 10,000 will probably signify that we've washed all those guys out and then maybe there can be another rally, but it's not going to be a new bull market. 
It'll just be a bear market rally and another opportunity to sell or to take profits if you took a shot and you bought that big dip and then you want to sell into that bounce. But for the CEO of Coinbase to say that the price of these cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular is irrelevant is sheer nonsense because the value of these cryptocurrencies, that's what they've got. That's the appeal. The only reason people want them is because they think the price is going to go up. If the price is crashing, that destroys the appeal of crypto. If you can't buy cryptos to get rich, if there's a big risk that you're going to go broke instead, then fewer people are going to want to own them. Fewer people are going to trade them. So to say that price is irrelevant to Coinbase's business model, price is the only thing that is relevant. It's the bull market in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that is generating all the interest to trade them. You take away that bull market, you take away the expectation of riches, people thinking that it's just a moonshot and it's only going to go up. If you take that away, then it's a game changer. And it's amazing that the CEO of Coinbase can't recognize that. Now, maybe she can't tell the truth. She can't go on CNBC and be honest about how terrible what just happened is for her business, right? She doesn't want to admit that. So she's trying to put a positive spin on it. And that's exactly what CNBC has done all week. You know, they have to point out these huge collapses, not only in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but all these crypto-related stocks, because they had these CEOs on one after another, touting these stocks, pie-in-the-sky forecasts, and not a critical word from anyone on CNBC. Their regular anchors, the people who are moderating these interviews, are pretty much all bullish. They've drank the Kool-Aid. They've been pumping this stuff up. And of course, all the advertisement, even this week on CNBC, you'll see as crypto and everything is imploding, it's one crypto and Bitcoin ad after another. But even as CNBC is pointing out about this big drop, there's no reflection. Nobody there is saying, gee, you know, maybe we got this wrong. Maybe we pumped this too hard. Maybe we bear some responsibility here for a lot of our audience having bought these stocks and bought these cryptocurrencies. No, nothing like that. I mean, they are kind of making fun of the fact that people are losing money in these coins because they thought they were inflation hedges or stores of value or safe havens. And it turns out they're high risk assets, but they're not accepting any of their own responsibility for what happened because they bought into that narrative too. It's not like it was just the people who bought these companies believe that narrative. The whole CNBC on-air anchor team bought into the same nonsense and hyped it up. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code and saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Now, I know a lot of people are probably thinking, Peter, how could you be beating up on Bitcoin and all these crypto stocks so much while ignoring what's happening to gold and gold and silver mining stocks? After all, they're getting killed too. And they are. And I acknowledge that. And I did not expect this type of collapse in these stocks, although I knew it was possible. Every time I talk to people 
about investing in gold and silver mining stocks, I always talk about how risky the investments are and that people should only buy these stocks if they are comfortable with that risk. Now, I think long-term, the upside potential is enormous regardless of the short-term downside risk that we've now experienced or that we are experiencing. Gold and silver stocks did bounce on Friday along with everything else. I don't know if there's any real significance of that other than it being an oversold bounce, just like a lot of other stocks. The GDX was up 2.3% on Friday. The GDXJ was up 3.9%. But both of those indexes got clobbered on the week. GDX down 9.8% on the week. GDXJ down 10.5% on the week. Yes, not as bad as the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, but a lot worse than a lot of the tech stocks. And the frustrating part about what's going on with the gold and silver stocks, and by the way, gold was down again on Friday. It didn't even rally. Gold dropped another nine bucks, so it's at 18.13. This is the lowest it's closed in some time. Pretty much all of gold's 2022 gains have now been surrendered. Now, gold's doing a lot better than the stock market in 2022, but it was doing a lot better a week ago, and it surrendered a lot of those gains. Silver managed a 46-cent rise, so that was a pretty big jump, but silver has been beaten up more than gold. It closed the week at $21.11, but the frustrating part about all of this, and I know it's going to be frustrating for other people, too, who own these stocks. When I was buying a lot of these gold and silver stocks years ago, and I bought a lot more during the early days of COVID when they were really giving these stocks away, and most of these stocks are still nowhere near those lows, although some of these silver stocks are getting pretty damn close to their March 2020 lows. But the reason I was buying these stocks is I was convinced the market was wrong about inflation, that it wasn't deflation, but inflation, that COVID wasn't a deflationary event, but an inflationary event, not by its nature, but based on the way we responded to it by showering the country with stimulus money, running this QE program, while at the same time telling people to stop working. I knew it was the most toxic combination of an inflationary monetary and fiscal policy I had ever seen. And so I wanted to own something that I thought would do very well when everybody was surprised by how much inflation there was. Well, I got that part right. Inflation did shock the hell out of everybody. The numbers are far higher than anybody could have believed. I'm certainly vindicated on the fact that it's not transitory. I said the Fed was lying when it first claimed it was transitory. In fact, I have proof that before they even came up with a transitory excuse, I was predicting that when inflation initially reared its head, first it would be dismissed and then they would claim it would be transitory. And so all this has come true. But what the markets still don't get is the Fed's not really going to fight inflation. I mean, it's pretending it's going to fight inflation. And that is the problem because all the people who were surprised by inflation they didn't expect now expect the Fed to get rid of it. And the reason they're dumping gold and silver and in particular these gold and silver mining stocks, it's not because they fear the inflation. They think the inflation is in the past. What they fear is this future inflation fight. The Fed is going to have this epic battle against inflation. Why do they think that? Well, because the Fed is saying that. The Fed is prepared to do whatever it takes, so it says, to bring inflation back down to 2%. And because the markets believe the Fed, they are selling these gold and silver stocks because they know it's going to take a really tight monetary policy to bring this inflation rate back down to 2%. And so the tighter they perceive 
future monetary policy is going to get, the more problematic everybody believes that's going to be for gold and silver and they're selling these gold and silver stocks. What they still don't seem to understand is that even if the Fed does what it claims it's going to do with raising rates and quantitative tightening, it's still not nearly enough to bring inflation back down to 2%. In fact, it's barely going to reduce the upward trajectory, let alone bring it all the way back down to 2%. And if the Fed actually tried to get inflation back down to 2%, it would not only send the economy into recession, but it would create a financial crisis worse than 2008. The markets still don't get that. I don't know why they can't think that far ahead. All they can see is the Fed is claiming it's going to fight inflation and it's going to jack up interest rates. And so for some reason, they believe that this is going to succeed. They don't recognize that the only reason the Fed is pretending that it's going to fight inflation is because A, it doesn't think it's going to have to really fight it. It thinks it's just by pretending that that's going to do most of the work. But also, they assume the U.S. economy is so strong that any rate hikes that they're forced to deliver, well, the markets will just shrug them off because the economy can take it because it's so super strong when in fact we may already be in recession. And so when the underlying weakness of the U.S. economy is finally laid bare, then all this tough talk about fighting inflation is going to go away because then the Fed is going to concentrate on its other mandate, which is the economy, which is employment. Because once people start losing their jobs in this recession, then the Fed is going to forget about inflation and start focusing on employment. For some reason, the markets aren't there yet. So whenever the markets get surprised by this hotter than expected inflation number, All they think about is now the Fed is going to have to fight harder. It never occurs to them that it means the Fed has already lost the fight and it's going to surrender and that this inflation is going to push the economy into recession and that recession is going to usher in an even larger round of inflation as the Fed returns to an even more inflationary policy to stimulate the economy. Look, if the Fed really were serious about fighting inflation, it would already be doing it. I've said this many times, it wouldn't just be talking about fighting inflation, it would be fighting it right now. Look at the balance sheet numbers that came out on Thursday. The balance sheet expanded by another 2%. Now, if the Fed has acknowledged that the balance sheet is already too big and it needs to be reduced, why are they still making it bigger? Yes, technically they're not going to start quantitative tightening until June, But here we are in May and the balance sheet is still expanding. All of these FOMC board members will acknowledge that we have a real inflation problem and they are going to work diligently and aggressively to bring inflation under control. It's an emergency. We have an inflation emergency and the Fed needs to act. Well, if so, why are they dragging their feet? Why are they acting so slowly? Why wait? Just shrink the balance sheet right now. In fact, interest rates are still below 1%. If you think interest rates should be 2 or 3% and you recognize that you're behind the curve and that you're too low because you underestimated inflation, the Fed went all these months believing inflation was transitory. And because they thought it was transitory, they left interest rates at zero. Well, by the time they found out they were wrong, They also knew that interest rates were much too low. So why not immediately adjust them? 
Why do they have to move in 50 basis point increments? And why do they have to space out their rate hikes by six weeks? If you think interest rates should be 3% and they're 1%, what's stopping you from immediately going from 1% to 3%? There's no rules that say you can't do that. In fact, look at how the Fed reacted to the COVID emergency. The Fed initially cut interest rates by 50 basis points. They went from 1.5% to 1%. Now, 12 days later, they didn't wait for a meeting. They immediately slashed interest rates again from 1% all the way to zero. So they went 100 basis points all at once and not six weeks later, but 12 days later. Why did the Fed move so quickly? Because there was a COVID emergency. The Fed thought that interest rates needed to be at zero quickly. It didn't want to wait until the next meeting to cut them or two more meetings. So it just went directly to one and did a 100 basis point cut. Well, if the Fed could act like that when the emergency is we need stimulus, why can't they act the same way when the emergency is we've got too much stimulus, we've got to get rid of it. When they're trying to fight off recession, they're willing to act quickly and make huge moves. But when they're trying to fight inflation, they're not. All of a sudden, they have to go slowly. They can't shock the markets. Well, why not? Maybe the markets need shocking. If interest rates are too low, the longer they're left too low, the more damage they do. Look what happened with QE. When the Federal Reserve cut interest rates from 1% to zero, it immediately launched a massive QE program that started right away. They didn't say, hey, we're going to phase it in. We're going to start in a couple of months. No, they went and they just immediately started doing it. So when it comes time to liquor up the punch bowl, yeah, they're there with a big truck dumping all kinds of alcohol into that punch bowl. When it comes to removing that punch bowl, they're very slow. They're very reluctant. Maybe they're slowly draining some of the alcohol out of the punch bowl, but they're still leaving a lot of it in there. The fact of the matter is you got to look at what the Fed is doing, not what the Fed is saying. They have to talk tough. And remember, I've talked about this. It's the opposite of the Teddy Roosevelt strategy. They don't have a stick. They can't really fight inflation. So they have to talk tough as if they're going to fight it because they're hoping their tough talk will do the fighting for them. And they won't have to reveal the fact that they don't really have a stick. Yes, they may be able to get a couple of more small rate hikes under their belt before the entire economy implodes. But you know what? They're not going to admit that it was their rate hikes that did it. They're going to come up with something else to blame the next recession on. They're not going to accept responsibility. They're not going to say we had a bubble economy and that economy couldn't survive without the air. They're going to come up with another excuse. Just like they're blaming inflation on Putin or on COVID, they're going to blame this next recession on something else. What? I don't know. Just whatever happens to be convenient. Something is going to happen. They're always going to have an excuse And everybody always seems willing to accept whatever excuse they come up with because it's better than having to accept reality. That's one thing nobody wants to acknowledge. It's not enough just to create wealth. It's essential to protect your wealth from unseen lawsuits, creditors and predators, including your own government seizing assets because you support the wrong political party. Every year, more than 15 million lawsuits are filed in the United States. Many of these lawsuits are frivolous, using lawyers to try to enrich the suing party, knowing that you'll likely settle rather than incur the expense and the aggravation. 
But imagine your hard-earned assets were held in legal structures that prevented creditors from gaining easy access to your assets. Remove the profit from the pursuit and most of these lawsuits will never happen. These days, having a sound and effective integrated estate planning and risk mitigation strategy is essential for affluent investors and business owners to secure their legacies. When total protection is wanted, and believe me, it's always wanted, reach out to Jeffrey Burdon at Jeffrey Burdon Law Group who's been protecting and securing his clients' legacies for decades. Remember, you must act now. You can't wait until after a lawsuit is filed or the asset protection won't work. So don't delay. Contact the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group today and mention my name and get a 50% discount on your initial consultation. With decades of experience assisting affluent investors and business owners in securing their legacies, the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group can really make a difference for you and your family. That's why I've been working with Jeff myself for years. When combining integrated estate planning with asset protection, affluent investors and business owners can install effective firewall protection against future what-ifs. In particular, Jeff Burdon helped me set up a trust structure where everything in the trust is completely exempt from the estate tax. So no matter how much money is there, All of it goes to my heirs and none of it goes to the government. So contact the Jeff Verdon Law Firm now and mention my name to get a 50% discount on your initial consultation. That's jmvlaw.com. In fact, another thing that nobody wants to acknowledge is what a horrible job Jerome Powell has done as Fed chairman. In fact, just yesterday, he was officially confirmed for a second term. He was nominated by Biden some time ago, but it wasn't until this week that it was official and he was confirmed for a second term. Now, why should this guy be given a second term? It's not like he did such a great job during his first term because look at the Fed's mandate. One half of that mandate is price stability, which according to the Fed and the way they've redefined it, it's 2% inflation. Well, do we have 2% inflation? No, we have 8% inflation, four times what it's supposed to be. And unofficially, of course, it's much higher than 8%. But even if we accept the government at its word, why should a Fed chairman who presided over a Federal Reserve that delivered 8% inflation four times what it's supposed to be, why does that guy deserve a second term? I mean, can't we find somebody better who didn't do such a bad job, especially in the light of the fact that Powell was so certain that it was transitory? So if Powell was so certain that inflation was transitory, doesn't that tell you he's incompetent? Because there were other people who saw this thing coming. Other people knew it wasn't transitory. Maybe we can get one of those guys to be Fed chairman. Why should we have someone who's chairing the Federal Reserve who's so clueless, so oblivious to all these warning signs of inflation, yet we're nominating him again for a second term, despite the fact that his first term was a disaster. Now, maybe one of the reasons that it's not that big a deal is because if they didn't renominate Powell, well, they would have put somebody else in who would have done just as bad a job. It's not like there were all these good candidates that they had to consider. So if they didn't reappoint Powell, they would have appointed somebody else equally as incompetent. Because all of the people who are actually competent enough to chair the Federal Reserve are never going to even be considered for the position. So it's simply a question of which incompetent person is going to chair the Fed. And so it really doesn't matter that we renominated Powell because if we didn't, we would have got somebody just as bad, if not worse. But my point is, look how ridiculous it is that the guy who is 
the chairman of the Federal Reserve during really the worst period of inflation in our history and an inflation that he was convinced was not going to happen. How is that guy still the Fed chairman? And how does anybody have confidence in that institution? They shouldn't. And eventually they won't. Just like confidence was lost in the Terra Luna coin, right? It's going to get lost in the dollar because of the incompetence of the people at the Federal Reserve. Look, look at some of the other economic data that came out this week. These are more Fs on the Powell report card and why he should have been flunked, not promoted to a second term. Look at consumer sentiment. That was supposed to decline slightly in the month of May. And this is a preliminary number, so we don't have the final read on it. But the April number was 65.2. And the consensus was for a slight decline to 63.7. Instead, we crashed all the way down to 59.1. That is an 11-year low in consumer sentiment. And what is driving consumer sentiment down? Inflation. Inflation going up is pushing consumer sentiment down because the consumers are bummed out that everything they want to buy costs more money. And in fact, the current condition index is even worse. It dropped to a new 13-year low. It said 63.6. But if you look at the expectations for inflation, one year ahead, the number is 5.4. That's the inflation rate that consumers expect for the year ahead. Now, you know what? They're probably underestimating it. If they actually knew that it was going to be worse than that, they'd be even more pessimistic. But 5.4% is still a big number. But probably more important, if you look at long-term inflation expectations going out five to 10 years, consumers are now expecting inflation to average 3% per year. Now, here's why this is so significant. Because Powell himself has stated that his main concern when it comes to inflation is expectations. And he wants to make sure that expectations remain anchored at 2%. And in fact, he's constantly said that expectations are anchored at 2%, despite the fact that that anchor is no longer there because we've drifted up to 3%. That is a big deal. Consumers now expect inflation over the next 5 to 10 years to be 50% above the Fed's target. So the Fed has a lot of work to do to bring those expectations back down. But the fact that they're already so high in and of itself indicates complete failure on the part of Powell because by his own standard, he's failed and he should just resign. It shouldn't be that we shouldn't give him a second term. He should be mad enough to step down and say, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. I failed miserably. Let me just step down and go home. Maybe you guys can appoint somebody who's actually competent, who knows something about what they're doing, because I clearly don't because I got everything so wrong. But no, he's not going to say that. And again, maybe because he knows that his successor, whoever that's going to be, could be even more incompetent. And knowing Joe Biden, because the only person that's going to be there is somebody that Joe Biden picks. And whoever Joe Biden picks is probably going to be even worse than Powell. So it's just as well he's still there. Plus, on the day that we got the news that Powell was officially appointed to a second term, we also got the bad news on producer prices. That number, again, came out a bit hotter than expected, mainly because of the upward revisions to the prior month. So the March PPI was initially reported at up 1.4%. And that was revised to up 1.6%. So the April number, which was supposed to be up 0.5, that came in at up 0.5, 
but it rose from a higher level, which means the year-over-year increase was worse than expected. It was supposed to be 10.7, and instead it was 11. Now, the prior month, March, which was at a record 11.2, going back to I forget when, but that record was now increased to 11.5% year-over-year increase in the producer prices in March. Now, if you take out food and energy, we were actually a little bit better than estimates. They were looking for up 0.6 and we were up 0.4, but we lost that in the revisions because the March month, which were originally reported as up one, was reported as up 1.2. So the two months combined were a push, but the year-over-year core did manage to improve slightly from up 9.2% in March to only being up 8.8% in April. But these are still very, very big numbers. And remember, these numbers still exceed the consumer price numbers, which means there's still a lot of room for companies to raise their prices and they're going to raise their prices. Companies that have been dragging their feet, that have been reluctant to pass on their higher costs, are going to throw in the towel and they're going to pass in these costs, especially since they keep rising. Initially, they had hoped that it was transitory. They were believing the Fed and other economists who were insisting not to worry, this is all transitory, it's going to go away. Well, now that everybody is accepting that the price hikes that we've already experienced are permanent, they're not going away. And in fact, we're going to continue to build on those hikes. The only question is, at what rate? Well, now businesses need to catch up and adjust their prices along with their costs. Now, of course, as they do that, they're going to be losing some customers. They're going to be pricing some customers out of the market. And so they're going to have to downsize their businesses to take into consideration that fewer people can afford their more expensive products, which is one of the reasons that we're going to see a big increase in unemployment. In fact, we did see a increase again in the weekly claims. They were at 200,000 in the prior week, and that was the first time we were above 200,000 in like three months. And they revised that to 202,000. And instead of dropping to 190,000, which was the expectation, we went up again to 203,000. So now we have two weeks in a row above 200,000. Maybe we've bottomed out in jobless claims. I think we probably have. The question is how quickly are the pink slips going to go out based on the carnage in the stock market and what's happening in the economy based on higher inflation and higher interest rates. In fact, we got the import-export prices again, and this time they actually came out slightly lower than expected. But to me, what's more important is the actual level, not whether or not we exceeded or fell short of expectations, because the increase for the month for import prices was supposed to be 0.6, and instead prices were flat, although the prior month the 2.6% gain was revised up to 2.9. Now, one of the reasons that we might have caught a break on imports was the strong dollar. We had a big increase in the dollar, and that should have made our imports less expensive. That's just not going to be something that we're going to be able to count on to be repeated every month. But if you look at our export prices, they were supposed to be up by 1%, and instead they were up by 0.6%, so not quite as big an increase in the export prices. In fact, the previous month was reduced from up 4.5% in March, which was a huge number, to up a slightly less huge number of 4.1%. But it's the year-over-year numbers 
that are more alarming because import prices are up 12% year over year. Yes, that's better than the 13% year over year increase we had in March, which was an upward revision from what we were originally told. And our export prices are up 18% year over year. They were supposed to be up 19.2. So we didn't quite live up to that expectation, but 18% year over year is still a huge increase in one year for prices. In fact, in March, the initial estimate of an 18.8% year-over-year increase was slightly reduced to 18.6, but these are still huge numbers, whether it's 18% or 18.6%. These numbers dwarf the official numbers on the CPI. And as I've been saying, I think the import and export prices are a far more realistic assessment of what's actually happening to prices in the United States than the official CPI. And that's because these prices are not doctored. They're not adjusted. They're not subject to hedonics or substitution. The prices are the prices. All they're doing is looking at what we're actually importing and what we're actually exporting, and they're comparing the price. That's it. They're not monkeying around with the basket and trying to figure out what was bought and what wasn't, what has higher quality, what doesn't. It's just an honest read on what prices are. And I think this is far more reflective of what's happening in the real economy. That's why inflation is such a huge issue. That's why you have consumer confidence plunging. That's why Biden's poll numbers are so low, because this is a massive surge in consumer prices, which means there is a collapse in people's real wages, in people's standard of living. That is why savings have plunged. That is why credit card debt has exploded to record highs. And again, in an inflation fight, that can't happen. Inflation is an increase in the supply of money and credit. And both money and credit are still surging. Despite the Fed's rate hikes, consumers are borrowing more, not less. So we're not going to have a successful fight against inflation until the Fed stops consumers from borrowing. But that's not going to happen because the only reason consumers can spend is because they can borrow. And if you built an entire economy on spending borrowed money, how are you going to take away the source of that borrowed money? How are you going to deny the ability of consumers to go deeper into debt and assume that we're not going to have a recession when the whole economy is built on debt financed consumption? And it's not just the consumer that's spending borrowed money, it's the government that's spending borrowed money. In fact, the government continues to borrow and spend money. Look, there's a new bill that's held up in the Senate now by Rand Paul, who's one of the few guys in the Senate willing to speak up, but there's a $40 billion aid package for the Ukraine. Now, where's this $40 billion going to come from? Is anybody in Congress talking about what taxes they're going to raise so that we can come up with $40 billion to give to the Ukrainians? Or, hey, maybe we should cut back on some other government spending so we can make some funds available because this is a worthy cause. We need to give $40 billion to the Ukraine, so we have to figure out how to save $40 billion someplace else. No, nobody is talking about where the money is going to come from. Everybody just wants to spend it. Well, where's it going to come from? More debt. Well, we're trying to fight inflation. Every member of the Congress admits that there's too much inflation and we have to fight it. You don't fight inflation by running bigger deficits. 
the government needs to cut government spending, not come up with more aid packages and expect the Federal Reserve to create the money because the Fed is supposedly fighting inflation too. Even Brand Paul is pointing this out. Where is this money going to come from? We already have massive deficits. We can't just borrow $40 billion from China. They don't want to lend us any more money. We can't borrow it from the Fed because they're claiming they want to shrink their balance sheet. But will they actually do it? Because who's going to buy these bonds? You know, the bond market got clobbered on Friday, but we still had a gain on the week for bonds. Yields fell on the week. There was a little bit of a reprieve there in the bond market. I think all of this negative economic news, the carnage in the stock market, I think all of that worked to the benefit of bonds, but just temporarily. I think this bear market is going to continue. It's going to be brutal for the bond market. I don't think we're anywhere near a bottom. In fact, one of the reasons bonds were so weak on Friday was because crude oil was so strong. It moved up about $4 a barrel. It closed at 108.43. It was down about a dollar on the week, but still Oil held up a lot better than stocks, and the chart looks incredibly strong for oil. I think we're on the verge of another big move up in the price of oil, which is going to be more bad news for the bond market. But as the bond market continues to fall and interest rates continue to rise, we're going to inflict more pain on the economy, more pain at the government level because the government has so much debt on the individual level, on the corporate level. And as long as interest rates keep rising, stock market rallies won't last. We had a rally on Friday, but the underlying fundamentals that are causing stocks to drop, rising interest rates and a reduction in multiples, a contraction of the price that investors are willing to pay for earnings in the distant future in a new environment of rising interest rates and high inflation, that is going to continue. And you can't collapse the stock market without the economy going into recession because so much of the economy was built on the foundation of not only the wealth effect of the stock market, but the employment effect. The fact that so many money losing companies were able to hire workers, even though they're not making any money to pay them. The reason they're able to hire workers is because all the cheap money that was sloshing around ended up in their coffers because investors were directing that money to these companies, malinvestments, because they thought they were going to get rich on a stock price going up. And so in the process, all these non-viable jobs got created well a lot of those jobs are about to be lost they never should have been created in the first place but once they're lost there is no job that's going to immediately take their place given what's going on in the economy and the fed is going to be staring not just at a recession but a depression and the prospect of an even worse financial crisis in 2008 does anybody really think in that environment the fed is really going to be talking tough about fighting inflation when as far as it's concerned and everybody else in Washington is concerned, it's got a much bigger problem on its hands and it's willing to accept inflation as a trade-off to trying to solve the more important problem of a collapsing economy and fending off another financial crisis. And again, as I said in my last podcast, Powell doesn't admire Paul Volcker because he had the courage to do what's right. He just admires him because he had the courage to do what he believed in. And I don't think Jerome Powell has the same set of core beliefs as Paul Volcker. I think he has a different set of beliefs and he's going to act on those set of beliefs. And that means not sacrificing 
the short-term economy, not allowing a recession, but doing everything in his power to try to mitigate one or postpone one. And if that means much higher inflation, then that's exactly what Powell is prepared to do. And as an investor, we need to be prepared for that. And we need to recognize the fact that so many people now still don't understand this. They still are not able to see through this little mountain to the valley on the other side. And that valley is full of inflation. And just like investors were making a mistake six months ago and they were overpaying for these momentum stocks because they thought the prices would keep going up, well, they're making the same mistake with respect to gold and silver mining stocks. They're selling them when they should be buying them, just like they should have been selling these momentum stocks and these tech stocks last year. Instead, they bought them. They're making the same mistake because they still can't see into the future. They're still focused on a narrow window of what's going on without being able to process what comes next or connect these dots. So that just creates an opportunity. A lot of people had an opportunity to unload their tech stocks and their meme stocks and their cryptocurrencies because the consensus was that these prices would keep going up. Well, now you have the opportunity to buy what a lot of other people are selling. All the people who were surprised by inflation, who didn't think inflation was coming, who now think that the Fed is going to be able to get rid of it, they're wrong again. They were wrong in not recognizing the threat of inflation, and now they're wrong to accept the Fed's BS that it's able to combat it. It's not, but that does give people who don't own these stocks and gold and silver an opportunity. So if you're not holding enough gold and silver, you want more gold and physical gold and silver, contact Shift Gold, buy these coins, gold and silver coins, while they're still available, while they're on sale. And if you are willing to do something more speculative than just own real money and hold on to it, if you're willing to own these mining companies, there is tremendous leverage to the price of gold in these mining stocks. And if I'm right that inflation is here to stay and the Fed is not going to win the war on inflation, that it's already lost that war and soon it's going to surrender and everybody who thinks the Fed is going to win is going to recognize their loss, you can't wait for that to happen because if that does happen, these stocks will have already gone ballistic. So while everybody else is still in the dark and we can see the light, you can buy those stocks. Now, again, I think the best way to do it is through my diversified portfolios. I have a gold fund that people can buy, the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund. You can look at the Euro-Pacific website, epacfunds.com, epacfunds.com, and you can read about the gold fund. People can buy my gold fund. It's on platforms at all the major discount brokerage firms, Schwab and Fidelity. You can also talk to my representatives, the guys that work at Euro-Pacific Capital, europac.com, or you can talk directly with people at my asset management company here in Puerto Rico and get information on my mutual funds. You can buy my mutual funds. If you have a larger portfolio, we manage individual separate accounts in the gold and silver mining space. Those separately managed accounts are managed by Adrian Day. I don't manage them personally. I hired Adrian Day to do it because he's been doing this for 40 years and he's been doing it better than anybody else. He's got the best track record in the business. He knows what he's doing, in particular when it comes to these junior mining stocks because this is where the most explosive gains could be, but it's also where the biggest losses could be if you get it wrong. And again, these are highly speculative stocks. So you don't even want to get in to the mining space unless you're doing it with spec money. You have to accept the fact 
that if I'm wrong, you could end up with substantial losses. But I'm buying these stocks myself and I'm recommending that people who are willing to speculate buy them because I expect huge profits. Just because I expect them to happen doesn't mean they will happen, but it's my sincere belief that the upside potential is enormous. And so in my mind, that potential dwarfs the downside risk. And I am all over these stocks and I've even bought more myself this last week in this decline. And if the stocks continue to go down, I will keep buying more. My conviction is not altered at all based on the fact that other people are making mistakes. In fact, other people making mistakes just emboldens me in the belief that I'm doing it right. Now, I'm not on margin. I'm not going to get forced out of my positions. So all of this is noise or a buying opportunity. And I know from the past how quickly these stocks can turn around. Go back to the lows of March of 2020. Gold stocks went down more than the S&P. But look how quickly they rallied, much faster and a much bigger move up than the S&P. So these stocks can turn very, very quickly, which is why it's better to buy them on the way down, because sometimes it's very scary to buy them on the way up. 